Okay, so we are uh, in our continuing series on Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, and I believe this is a critical study uh, because it, it all comes out of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And you know that immediately following the crucifixion, after Jesus was resurrected on Sunday morning, <coughs> he appears to two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus, and that's about a seven-mile uh, walk. And as he's walking, these, are, these men are downhearted. Their word, world has collapsed. Uh, and Jesus uh, basically opens up the scriptures and explains to them that they shouldn't be surprised that, this, that the Christ had to suffer. And the Bible was all about him. It was all about him. Uh, he didn't tell them he was Christ. But it, it lifted their hearts, lifted their spirit. And at the end of the trip, they, they did understand that, he, that it was Jesus uh, and he disappeared, they went back to Jerusalem. And so that's the essence of why we're doing this, because Christ said it was critical that we understand it. And so we need to understand that everything in the scripture is about Jesus, is about Jesus. And so I want you to know that, uh, that when you leave here, you can tell your families that, uh, you can tell your friends that. It's, it's a critical study. And so uh, as we drill down uh, today, one of the things we're going to look at is a man called Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Uh, he is uh, really the first high priest that we will see in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 14, uh, beginning with verse 17. Genesis 14, beginning with verse 17. Now let me give you the pretext. Uh, Abraham uh, will be engaged uh, in warfare here and will align himself with several other kings uh, in order to defend uh, his family uh, and, and to advance, really, righteousness. Uh, and as a result, he is victorious. He has led this uh, military effort, and he's victorious. And so God now wants to protect his future. He does not want him to be aligned with these other kings. He does not want that. Uh, he wants him to remain focused on God himself. And so Melchizedek appears. And so if you look at verse 17, we'll read a few verses. It says, And after Abram returned from defeating Ketelaomar, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom, notice that, the king of Sodom, came out to meet him in the valley of Shavath, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, king of Salem really at that point means Jerusalem. Jerusalem as a city has not yet really been formalized. It will be later with David, but now it's referred to as the king of Salem, okay? Brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram. Now, understand this. He is a priest of God Most High. He's bringing him bread and wine. He's effectively serving him communion, okay? He's serving him communion. Uh, and so what you see here is a typology, all right, of Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus. He's not Jesus here. But he is effectively a type of what Jesus will be. Uh, and it's important for you to see here. And look what he says here. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, that's the first time 
you will see in scripture of the tithe, the tithe. And so Abram, of everything that he got, you know, in terms of the success of the battle, he gives uh, to Melchizedek a tenth of it all, uh, which begins our responsibility of tithing. Uh, but Abraham said, uh, uh, and it continues on, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high creator of heaven and earth and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Wow. You see the commitment of this man to God alone. He does not want to uh, have any divided loyalty. He's serving God. And so Melchizedek uh, really, really serves an important role here. A typology of Jesus. A typology of Jesus uh, uh, as, as the ultimate high priest. Uh, and if you look at Psalm 110, verse 4, you'll see something else on this. And there you'll see... Uh, it speaks, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's, that, that's uh, a foretaste of what Jesus will be. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and so this, this mysterious man that you don't see mentioned again uh, uh, is effectively the king of righteousness, uh, and he's the king of peace. He, he brings peace uh, in, into Abram's life. Uh, and so while some people say, well, he, he must be an angel, or maybe it's a Christophany, it's neither, I don't believe. Uh, it, it is a typology of Christ himself. Uh, now, when we talk about uh, typology, and it's important because that's often what we see in the Old Testament, uh, there are some theologians that refer to Abram's son Isaac as a type of Christ uh, because God commands Abram to sacrifice him. Well, there it is. It's his son, and God is commanding him to sacrifice his son. So it will speak uh, really of what will come down the road in about 1,800 years. But when God sees that Abraham passes the, the test of faith, that he's willing to sacrifice him, uh, God spares Isaac spares him and sovereignly offers a, a ram to be substituted for him, thereby making the boy a type of Christ as well, uh, and, you know, as a, 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 a picture of a sacrifice. Uh, thus, God provides the sacrifices uh, just as he provides his son as the ultimate sacrifice for all of humanity once and for all. Uh, and so what is significant here is that Isaac brought the wood himself uh, to that event, remember? He brought the wood, all right? Well, 1,800 years later, Jesus would carry the wood on his back. And so you see the Bible giving you prophetic hints of what will take place. Uh, this is how prophecy really predicted down to the smallest degree uh, points about the details of Jesus' death, all right? This is all typologically correct. You need to understand that. As you read the scripture, this is what it's about. Uh, God is not doing it in secret. This is important even as you advance the word of God to your Jewish brethren. You know, they believe the scripture, but for some reason their eyes have been clouded. They, not, they do not really understand the issues of Christophanies or typologies. 
Uh, and so you get a chance, these are the kind of things that you can talk to them about uh, and make a very significant point in their life. Now, Joseph, Joseph uh, is authentically a type of Christ, uh, a typological type of Christ. Uh, there are abundant comparisons that you can make here. Like Christ, uh, Joseph is born by God's supernatural action. He was born from a Rachel when Rachel was an old woman and couldn't conceive. And so, yes, he was born uh, in that way. Uh, and <laughs> Jesus, who was born more in a more unusual way than Jesus without a man uh, coming from the seed of a woman. Uh, and uh, we understand that Joseph was conspired against uh, by those who wanted to kill him, his own brothers, who hated him, all right, and sold him into slavery, all right, just like Jesus uh, was suffered by the slings and arrows of those who hated him. Uh, Joseph is rescued from prison, uh, rescued from death, uh, and just as Jesus would be resurrected from death and allowed to reign and rule. And Joseph would be allowed to reign and rule. Can you imagine that you see this picture of a man coming out of prison and effectively becoming the second most powerful person in all of Egypt? If you look at Acts chapter 7, verse 9, <clears throat> you'll get a good image of this. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is at the end of that story with Joseph and his brothers when finally they reunite uh, and, and Joseph is saving them from famine and death. And they understand finally, oh my God, this is Joseph, our brother. Oh, and they quake in fear because they're afraid he's going to kill all of them because of what they did. 17 years in slavery and in prison because of what they did. And Joseph looks at them and says these words that to me echo down through the millennia in my own life. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Put that on your refrigerator. How's that? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Meaning there will be malefactors in your life. There are people who will hate you and despise you and move against you, but you are a child of God. He's put a hedge around you. Everything that, can, that goes on in your life is going to be preordained by God and so what they meant for evil, God will turn and use for good. That's how God is. And so who would write a story where a man could be in prison and will effectively wind up being prime minister of Egypt? But that's the story of God. Uh, and Luke, when he wrote, wrote Luke, uh, the gospel offers a similar description of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where he says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. That was the life of Christ. As he walked, even as a child, as he continued with his life, as he started his ministry, uh, he was increasing in wisdom in every way, and in stature, and in favor with God, just like Joseph. Uh, 
What is more, in a passage really suggestive of, of Jesus, Joseph becomes a savior to all the people in the earth. Look at Genesis chapter 41, verse 57. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. How about that? The entire earth coming to Egypt because Joseph effectively would be their savior because he had aligned the forces of Egypt to be prepared uh, just like Christ. Amazing, amazing. Now, Jacob's ladder, Jacob's ladder, uh, uh, which is a passage that you'll find in Genesis, Jacob's ladder is a symbol also of Christ as well. And you know, that's a, a, a dream that Jacob has uh, that the angels of God are ascending and descending on a ladder. Uh, and God reiterates uh, promises that he is within the, the patriarchs, the promise of Abraham. And Jacob is part of that. Uh, and so uh, what you see here uh, is that God is teaching Jacob that he will be part of a great blessing. Take a look at Genesis uh, chapter 28. Verse 10. When Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Well, how about that? Uh, as you see that, and recognize really what's, what's going on there. God is promising Jacob that he will effectively be a blessing to all the earth. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, uh, theologians who look at the promise of God to the children of Israel about the land uh, have opined that the land that God has promised them is far greater than the land of Israel right now. Actually, if you go back and study it, uh, that promise probably includes... Jordan. Uh, it includes parts of Iraq, possibly even parts of Iran. Can you imagine? It's a much greater territory, much greater territory uh, than the physical state of Israel right now. Well, time is not done. History is not done. Uh, and so you see it. Uh, and so uh, Jesus, again, is found uh, all around the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is central 
uh, to the Old Testament. It's central because effectively we see the people of Israel, the Jewish people, being taken out of captivity. And so Exodus becomes symbolic of Christ in so many ways, symbolic of Christ uh, and, and full of Christian imagery and symbolism. Uh, and beginning with Moses, you see. Moses himself is a type of Christ. Uh, the Passover, all right, when we talk about the sacrifice, the sacrifice of, of the lamb is Christ himself, a symbol of Christ himself. The Exodus event, the event of Exodus, having people who are constrained and handcuffed in sin and, and suffering, being delivered uh, by their deliverer, is an example of Christ dying on the cross for us, delivering us from sin. You see it over and over and over again. Uh, the construction of the tabernacle, how it's constructed, what it contains, what elements it contains, the holy of holies, and the veil beyond which we, you know, a, a high priest couldn't come except once a year, uh, and that veil which would be pierced when Jesus would be uh, sacrificed on the cross. And so you see it over and over again, the consummation of salvation, what the history of salvation will be, and what Jesus is, all symbolically laid out for you uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and so it's important. Uh, take a look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. And here's the predicate for the uh, Jewish people. Uh, being imprisoned in Egypt. And you know that they came there with a relatively small contingent uh, under Joseph. I think Joseph's whole family, at the time that they came to Joseph to be fed uh, from the famine, was probably about 70 people. And so uh, here he is. He took care of the 70 people. They are now encamped in Egypt, and they were under the services of a, of a kindly king, obviously a pharaoh, that loved uh, Joseph, but you know, people die and things change. And so this passage speaks of that, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, 400 years, now the Jewish people now number about 3 million. During that long period, they didn't have television then. You can mark that in your notes. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out in their cry for help because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God doesn't forget. God makes covenant promises. And so he heard their cries. He heard their suffering. Uh, and that's why he called Moses. And you see, Moses becomes symbolic of Christ. God sees the plight of humanity. He sees us burdened with sin and recognizes we need a Savior. We can't come to God. We can't have eternal life unless we have a Savior, and so we sense Jesus. And so God, being omniscient, is incapable of forgetting. Now, that's important for you to understand this. Uh, because I know a lot of you have been making prayers, and God is not necessarily answering your prayers. Uh, and uh, you wonder, why isn't he answering my prayers? 
Why is that? You know, I'm, I'm reminded of one of my famous prayers that thankfully went unanswered. I prayed some years ago as a hurricane was approaching Naples. Lord, please, Father, it's, it's going to hit Naples directly. Lord, I, if I pray, Lord, just let it go 10 miles off, off of Naples. Don't let it hit it directly. Well, I found out later from a meteorologist that it was thankful that God didn't answer that prayer because it struck Naples directly. And yes, Naples took a hit, but it survived. But if my prayer had gone up to heaven and had been listened to by God, I was told by a meteorologist that Naples would be under seven feet of water. Yeah. How do you like that? How do you like that? And I heard another example of, of unanswered prayer. My son told this yesterday in church. I listened to it. Uh, and uh, he wanted to be an investment banker. He was at Wake Forest. Uh, and he wanted to be an investment banker. And so as part of that curriculum, he had to take accounting. Uh, and so he took accounting, and he just couldn't get it. And uh, he took the final grade, and he, he, he put it up on the board. He got a 36. It's not good. And this is, this is a guy who had basically gotten all A's and B's. I love the fact when a, when a preacher can really air his dirty laundry. I got a 36, so of course... He prayed about it. He said, I, had, I went to the teacher to appeal it. No. And I went to the boss to appeal it. And, and no. And so, no. There was no. And so he realized that if he couldn't pass accounting, he really couldn't be an investment banker. And that was the reason that he began to explore other areas uh, of study. And he became a du dual major in English and religion. Now, that wouldn't have happened, you see if he had gotten a successful grade in accounting. Now, we don't know why these things happen. You understand? We don't understand it. It's painful. Oh, man, it's painful. God, intervene in my life. He is intervening. He's just not intervening the way you wanted to intervene. And this is important. I want you to understand this. And so you see it, uh, God, over and over and over again. And I'm sure that you all have similar stories in your life uh, about that. Uh, you know, I'm in my own life, even uh, the reason that a church is being formed now because of the will of God, the Naples gathering, is because of the untoward way I exited my last church. Now, do you think I'd draw up a plan in which I would exit the way I exited? You know it. I don't want to repeat it. It was one of the most painful episodes in my life. You understand? How could this happen to me? Lord, I've served you. I've taught Bible studies. I have 500 people that I'm responsible for every Sunday. And now I'm told don't set foot in the parking lot? How could this be? Well, this is why it could be, because God knew there was a better call on my life. You understand? I understand that. And here's the thing. Would I have voluntarily done that? No. Because I'm long-suffering. I'm loyal. I'll hang in there, all right? I'll hang in there. But you know what? God determines there's time to move on. And some of us need to be hit in the head with a two-by-four. And I'm one of those guys. But I have recognized the hand of God in my life. And I would encourage you to think the same way. And so I want you to think about Moses in that, in that vein. Uh, here he is, the prince of Egypt, right at the very top. Possibly could be Pharaoh. Uh, and yet he comes to understand that he's a Jew, 
Uh, and then when he goes to the Jewish people and tries to help them, uh, and he inadvertently kills uh, an Egyptian, they turn against him, even the Jewish people he's forced to leave. He spends 40 years out in the desert. Out in the desert. Uh, and somebody said Mo Moses uh, spent 40 years becoming a somebody, and then 40 years becoming a nobody, and then God proved that he could take a nobody and make him a somebody. Isn't that true? And I would say that's the essence of what we learn there about Moses. And so I would say that's for your life also, as you see it. Uh, and so God sees the people of Israel in pain and suffering, just like he sees you in pain and suffering. He hears their cries. Uh, and so God delivers them out of bondage. Uh, and this is where God's promise begins to redeem mankind. He begins it there in Egypt. And it will end on the cross in Jerusalem, uh, effectively 1,400 years later. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and so he's redeeming his promise uh, to mankind, redeeming him, proving that he is sovereign. And faithful, especially his promise to redeem us. <clears throat> and that's what the Old Testament is all about. God redeeming his people. Uh, and, and you uh, seeing symbolically and typologically that Jesus is just down the road. And so in Exodus, Egypt symbolizes the world. It's the world. The world in sin. Uh, and in Pharaoh, we see Satan, the adversary. Uh, who rebels against God and is the conniving enemy of the people. Uh, and that's what sin is about, and that's what Satan is about. And so uh, Israel uh, represents man in its fallen state. That's what Israel did uh, in Egypt uh, and in need of redemption. Uh, and the people's enslavement, effectively, is a metaphor for the cruel bondage of sin. That's metaphorically what you're seeing. Yes, they were in, in physical bondage, but we as human beings are all in uh, a bondage to sin. It's the same thing. Uh, the groaning of the Israelites uh, is analogous to the spiritual agony of sinners as they recognize their sinful and lost condition. This is what it's like. Yes, the Jewish people cried out in agony, but even for us as human beings, as we recognize, I need a savior. Lord, I can't do it. I can't walk with you. I can't deliver myself. I can't pull myself out of this depth of sin. And God hears you when you do that. Uh, and so you see God's provision uh, of the Passover and the sacrificial system, uh, it reveals, proves that your sal salvation is purchased by blood. Now he wrote this, from the beginning of time. Your salvation is purchased by blood. And so there you have it, 1,400 years before Christ would be born, they're told uh, to celebrate this event, the Passover, and take a, an unblemished lamb, sacrifice that lamb, don't break the bones of the lamb, that becomes critical, and take the blood and put it over the doorpost. You must actively take the blood and apply the blood, okay? Applying the blood. Uh, and so what you recognize that the redemption of the people of Israel was purchased by blood. And your redemption 
thousands of years later is also purchased by blood, the blood of Christ. Don't ever forget it, the blood of Christ. Uh, and so Moses becomes a typological uh, symbol of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus will do. Uh, he, he will deliver his people. Uh, the uh, Exodus event really signifies the sinner's liberation from sin. And the crossing of the Red Sea prefigures our union with Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death and resurrection. That's what it does. Uh, just going through the Red Sea. Uh, effectively, we're baptized into Jesus Christ. The Jewish people were taken out uh, of, uh, of being handcuffed and delivered. Uh, and all of this is really a typological uh, metaphor of what Jesus Christ will do. And so it becomes uh, symbolic and important for you to understand this. Make no mistake about it, God is painting a picture of Jesus. No mistake about it, he's painting a picture of Jesus. Uh, and so even as he gave the law, even as he gave the law to Moses, uh, effectively what he was saying was the necessity of obedience to God. You need to be obedient. I've saved you. I've brought you out of bondage. You need to be obedient. And so you see, as he gave them the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself is a multifaceted uh, picture of Christ. And I want to go over that uh, with you. And so here they are. They build the tabernacle, a, t a tent, effectively. Uh, and they, in there, that is where they do their worshiping and sacrifices to God, the Day of Atonement. Um, and there's only one gate in and one gate out. One gate to go into the tabernacle. Well, guess what? No man cometh to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. No man cometh to the Father except through me. One gate. Not all your human philosophies. Not all your great existential thoughts. None of it. One, one gate, Jesus Christ alone. And then you will see the brazen altar in the tabernacle. Uh, and that is a type of Christ uh, in our sacrifice uh, as, as the altar there stands. And then perhaps one of the greatest references to Christ is the veil in the temple. The veil. Because the Holy of Holies is a place where the high priest can only go once a year after he is atoned. And if you get home and you want to read something that will blow your mind up, read Leviticus 16. Because Leviticus 16 will tell you all of the steps that had to be taken for the high priest to atone for himself before he went into the temple. Multiple washings. Multiple washings uh, and sacrifices before he could take that step into the Holy of Holies. That he could walk through the veil of the Holy of Holies and see there the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and if, in fact, he did not properly atone for himself, they would tie a rope with bells on him. Because what would happen? He'd be struck dead. If he did not properly atone, he'd be struck dead. And the only way they would know it, they couldn't go in. They'd hear the bells would not ring anymore. So they'd yank this rope and pull the corpse out. And there were examples in Scripture where that exactly happened, where people went in and did not properly atone. 
that, um, and so you see the essence, really, the essence being drawn out for you of Jesus uh, in this way, and the Holy of Holies. Then you have the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, which God told them exactly how it should be, with a mercy seat on top, uh, where, where the blood sacrifice would take place. Uh, and inside the Ark of the Covenant, it contained the law, it contained the manna, and it contained Aaron's budded rod. There it is, in the Ark of the Covenant. All right, and that would be there on the Holy of Holies. Uh, and, and it contains God's testimony to Israel. Again, an all another typology of Christ itself. Uh, and the mercy seat being there, that God in his mercy would deliver his people. Uh, the the uh, gold lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the mercy seat is the cover, the covering or removal of sin by means of expiatory uh, sacrifice. It's the expiation of sin uh, right there on the mercy seat through animal sacrifice, through blood, blood, blood. It's about blood, and that's what God has foreordained. Uh, and so it's important for you to, to know this and to understand it. And so all of this, you see, uh, is a precursor to Christ. Uh, and so it's important to understand that there are so many prefiguring issues of Christ in Exodus that it is difficult to do them all justice. There's that many, and you need to be aware of it. First of all, Moses. Moses, with his messianic character. Uh, he is a special type of Christ. Uh, he is a strong yet humble and obedient man. He is pure of heart uh, and compassionate as he pleads with God to spare his people even after they commit acts of debauchery with the golden calf. He doesn't say, go ahead, wipe them out. He prays for them. You understand? He prays for them because that's the type uh, of Christ praying for his people. Moses is the only figure in the Bible besides Jesus, to fill the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. You got it? That's your savior. Prophet, priest, and king. And Moses had those titles. But he had it as a human being. He wasn't, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't sinless. Uh, and so Moses tells the people uh, of Israel, as he takes them out and takes them through 40 years in the desert. He says, turn to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Critical verse in scripture. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Uh, and here you see God speaking directly to the people about the coming of Jesus. Moses says there, The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. He's talking about Jesus. It is to him you shall listen. The Lord your God will raise him up. And you know there were people that when Jesus came uh, to this world and started to go through his ministry, there were Jewish people that said, is this the prophet? Is this the prophet? Well, that's what they meant, the prophet that Deuteronomy mentioned. But you see, they never got it. They never got it. And so Moses had a very special relationship with God. Uh, he, he 
Okay, you see him going alone to meet God. Who goes to God face to face? Moses. Uh, and there God gives him the law, the very law that the people will fail to abide by. Uh, God entrusts him and deals with him specially and gives him the commandments. Uh, and so you see this, that, that in this prophetic role, Moses becomes a unique type of Christ. And God is painting the picture. But most of the typology concerning him is based on important events in his life that prefigure Jesus himself. Both are in danger from the beginning of their lives, both of them, uh, but are rescued in childhood, both of them. You know that. Uh, Jesus, they, they sent soldiers out to kill all the infants that were two and under. And similarly with Moses, they wanted to, to kill all the uh, male infants, uh, and they were both rescued from that. Both are chosen to be the saviors of their people and deliverers of their people, both of them. Both are rejected by their people. How about that? They're rejected by their people. Moses is rejected by the Jewish people, and Jesus Christ also rejected by the Jewish people. Both have to do battle on an ongoing basis with Satan and his forces. Both fast 40 days. Both of them fasted 40 days. Both take control of the sea. Moses through the Red Sea. Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. Both feed the multitude. Thousands fed. The faces of both radiate with God's glory. You know that story. Moses come back after coming down with the, with the Ten Commandments. They can't even look at his face. He has to wear a veil. And likewise, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they said afterwards the light coming from his face was incredible. Both are destructed, distrusted and rejected by their immediate families. This is a hard one. But, but Moses was distrusted by his family. His own sister backbit him, all right, uh, and, and, and attacked him for the, the woman that he married. And Jesus' brothers and sisters, and yes, let me assure you, Jesus had brothers and sisters, all right? Mary went on to have children uh, with Joseph uh, after Jesus was born, and his own brothers and sisters really thought there was something wrong with Jesus, right? Uh, we can read verses about that. But they thought that he was losing his mind, all right, uh, and they were they were concerned about him. They never they never affirmed him as a savior, uh, only until after he died on the cross. Now both Moses and Jesus intercede for their people. Moses on a on a regular basis praying to God to intercede for them, uh, even when they do acts of debauchery and, and uh, sin. Jesus constantly interceding for mankind. Both engaged in healing ministries. This is interesting. Uh, both specifically healed people of leprosy. Moses did that and so did Jesus. Moses is called the servant of the Lord just as Jesus is called the servant of the Lord. Moses dies so that his people can enter into the promised land and you know that he brings them 40 years right to the doorstep of the promised land uh, while Jesus dies so that you can enter into eternal life. You couldn't write a story like this, really, 
if you wanted to. And yet God interweaves the facts of his life. And so here we understand that Moses is the quintessential mediator. Uh, but he himself needs a savior. You understand? As great a man as Moses is, he needs a savior. And, and he's punished because instead of speaking to the rock to get water out of it, uh, he strikes the rock. And he commits a serious sin. And he's punished for that sin. Because here's the point. The rock symbolized Jesus. And the striking of the rock the first time symbolized the crucifixion. Well, here's the point. You can only crucify Christ once. Once and for all. And so you were told, speak to the rock. Don't strike it. But in anger, in anger, the poor man, poor man lost his mind. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder? And so really, Moses and Christ really uh, have this special relationship with the people uh, and their special relationship with God. God is prefiguring who Jesus would be. Each of them, in a sense, really, have a foot in, in both worlds, the human and the divine. Both of them had that. Uh, and though Moses pales greatly, greatly uh, in comparison to Christ, there are significant similarities in many, in many ways. Moses most, most closely prefigures Jesus Christ in more respects than any other person in the Bible. Now, let's talk about the Passover as also being an important uh, typology of Christ. Uh, when none of the first nine plagues overcomes Pharaoh uh, to liberate the people, God pulls out all stops. He pulls out all stops. He would not only attack Egypt, but he would attack Pharaoh specifically. This is after the plagues didn't bring Pharaoh to his knees. He would bring death, death to Egypt, to all of the firstborn in Egypt, and to all of the firstborn animals. Many people don't talk about that. Uh, but he would spare the Israelites. Uh, and uh, if you like, take a look at uh, Exodus chapter 11. Let's take a look at that. Verse 5. <clears throat> Verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who was at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go! You and all the people will follow you. After that, I will leave. Uh, and so there you have it. Pretty serious when God intervenes. Pretty serious. And so you see this here. Uh, and so God reveals that he will pass through uh, Egypt and will pass through Israel uh, and, and look at their houses. Uh, and so they have, they've been told, take the pure lamb, the firstborn lamb, without any mark. Take that lamb and sacrifice that lamb. 
and take the blood of the lamb and you, with that blood, paint the uh, door uh, frames so that uh, God will see that you are aligned with him. And so see, you see this is that you must take the blood. It's not merely the sacrifice of the lamb. It's proactively picking the blood and applying the blood. Just like you have to take the blood of Christ and accept it and apply it to your heart. You understand? It's not good enough that you have a mental image about what Jesus did on the cross. Look, mental images don't bring you salvation. Salvation comes when you proactively accept the gift of God, what he did on the cross. And you say, Father, I bow in submission. I accept your sacrifice for me. I love you, Lord. I will serve you. You're effectively taking the blood and applying the blood to your heart. You understand? Uh, and that's what they were told to do. Now, God says also, he's commanded that this event uh, for uh, continue for posterity by celebrating as a festival to the Lord. You will celebrate this event forever as a festival to the Lord. And I would say as a festival to the Lord ended on the day Jesus gave communion to the disciples. Because at that, at that event, at that event, Christ said to them, this is my body broken for you. And he broke the bread. And then as he poured the wine, this is my blood shed for you. Never again, you understand, would the Passover have the same uh, divine power that it had before when it was given, when they came out of Egypt. Yes, we recognize that. Yes, we honor that. But it had come to an end because that was the old covenant. And God had prepared them. There would be a new covenant. Uh, important. And so you, you, we, we bow before God as we see him writing this picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Can you imagine what it had to be for Christ to come to this world, to know that this had all taken place, and to see that the people did not understand, that the rabbis had failed to teach them, that they were ignorant of the prophecies? Uh, and, and I mean, it's a a, a really sad, sad story. Uh, and that's why God is not done with the Jewish people. They will have a second chance. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Write it down. And when he comes back, that's right, he's coming back. And when he comes back this time, he's not coming ba back at the baby in the manger. He's coming at the Lion of Judah. And when you read Revelations, it says, that we will be there as a great army behind him. We will march with him as he comes back to take control of this world, to wipe out evil. Uh, and it says in that passage there that as the armies of evil are surrounding Israel, seeking to, to wipe out Israel, that God will come back. And when he comes back, all he will do will speak a word. He will speak a word. And the Bible says a sword will come out of his mouth. And instantaneously, all of the evildoers will be struck dead. Well, you'll be there to see it. You'll be there to see it because you're going to be marching behind him. Uh, and God has preordained this from the beginning of time. And the Jewish people uh, will stand up for Christ at that time. There will be a significant number of them who will become evangelists. It's hard to believe, uh, but, it's, but it's true. 
And you, and you know, in, in giving the instructions, giving the instructions for uh, the Passover, uh, God told Moses, do not break any of the bones. Do not break any of the bones of the sacrificial lamb. Now, you might wonder when you're just reading that on your own, what does that mean, not break any of the bones? Why is that important? Why would he say that uh, in Exodus 12, 46? Well, take a look at John 19, verse 33. Now you'll understand it as you see God coming four square back to what he had done, what he had indicated 1,400 years earlier. And it says there, but when they came to Jesus on the cross and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, which is what they would do to everybody who was crucified. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And, and we know that he is telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, quote, not one of his bones will be broken. There it is, all right, written at the cross. Scripture is true. Prophecy is true. Not one of his bones will be broken. And so you see here uh, this picture of Christ beginning really, uh, from the beginning of the Bible, coming to fruition to the, in the Exodus. Uh, and, and you see it in the original Passover event. And here's the thing. You have to smear the blood yourself on the doorframe. You can't just talk about the blood. You can't just leave the blood uh, in a bowl. You have to proactively take the blood and apply the blood. This is what Christ wants from you. This is what God wants. Yes, you're saved. But you have to proactively accept it and do it and walk with him. Uh, and this is part of what God expects from us in our faith. Uh, this Passover is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then and now. Uh, and it really gives us a reality of what Jesus did for you at the cross. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. We bow in submission to your will. Lord, this picture of Moses and the Exodus is so clearly a prefiguring of you, Father, that we humbly uh, acknowledge it. We ask you to give us the ability to explain it to others who need to hear this, to understand that from the beginning of time, it was all about you, that every page in the Bible is about you. Let us make a commitment today, Father, to come up and be closer to you, to be a, a representative of you to our families, to our friends, to those around us. Help us, Lord, to lift up those in the church who may not have this same understanding. Give us the strength and courage, Father, to leave here with the understanding that this is how we are to advance your will in the kingdom of God. Lord, bless our people, protect them, and bring them back next week to continue our study as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you.